I'm Amber Harper from the Burned In Teacher Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and I want to begin this week by wishing everyone a happy Thanksgiving as we roll into the holiday season. Let me also begin by saying a big thank you to everyone out there that listens to the podcast and supports the show. I hope you will continue to share out episodes with friends and colleagues throughout P12 Education as we keep the conversation going with the Reimagined Schools hashtag on social media. You can also now sign up for the Reimagined Schools e-newsletter. Just visit our website at reimaginedschools.net, and you can also find the link on my Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins. I'm very excited about this week's episode, as I had the unique opportunity to sit down and talk with Google's chief education evangelist, Jamie Cassip, about a wide variety of topics, including his role as the lead developer of the Google Apps for Education suite and his role in the launch of Chromebooks throughout K-12 education. It was truly an honor to get insight from such an influential voice uh, in the education and technology space, and I think you will all truly enjoy this conversation as Jamie has an inspirational story and shares powerful insights into the characteristics of digital natives, Generation Z, the future of work, and the ever-changing role of technology in the classroom. So kick back and enjoy, and uh, enjoy all that turkey and dressing that you're going to have over the Thanksgiving break. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jamie Cossett. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. We have a big show for you this week, folks, as a true heavyweight in the ring is with us as we welcome in the Chief Education Evangelist at Google, Jamie Cassip. How's that for an intro? That, that, those expectations are high to meet. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I wish somebody would just say, here's Jamie. I have no idea what he's going to say. But, uh, let's just give him a chance. That, that would be a low expectation, high, high delivery. But okay, we'll see what we can do here. Well, when your business card says Chief Education Evangelist at Google, uh, you know, is that job as cool as it sounds? It is. It, it is because, you know, when you think about the term evangelist, what I think it means is that you're someone who brings good news. And I think that the news that I'm trying to bring is that, you know, this whole despair in education is unfounded that we're exactly where we need to be where we can start taking advantage of technology that the opportunity is such so so there that i think we could do some amazing things so uh, no matter where i end up in my life that evangelist role will always be the role i have well if we could let's start with um, your google experience uh you know you've been with google now 13 14 years you launched google apps for education first in higher ed did k-12 uh, largely responsible for the Chromebook rollout. Can you take us just behind the scenes a little bit, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, 
when you're having these deep conversations about changing learning in our schools, what was the goal and what were some of those conversations like? Yeah, so so the great thing about Google is that it, it takes just a couple of people to do big things. And, at, and that was true for Google Apps for Education. Google Apps for Education is now called G Suite, actually started in, in the university space because we were solving a problem. The problem that universities were having was actually around email. They were not, students were not using the email platforms that universities were providing. They were way behind. There were 250 megabyte hard drives. They were client-based and all these bad things about email at the time. So students were using their own email address. And so what happened was universities would have to go collect all the student emails, right? So they're going everywhere collecting emails. And what Google for Your Domain did, which ended up being Google Apps, which ended up being G Suite, was it gave universities the opportunity to bring all the students in to one platform where they could provide the email address to them. And then on top of that, the tools were great inside, this, inside the suite, whether it was Doc or presentations or, or Sheets. These tools, these collaborative tools worked really well for universities and students in universities. And then that kind of cascaded into K-12, where K-12, you started seeing more use of technology. You started seeing more educators, younger educators, bringing in their technology experience into the classroom. And, and so that started catching on. But again, these were tools that were solving specific problems around technology. And, and Chromebooks, you know, Chromebooks, the benefit of Chromebooks, on, there, were, there were two benefits, right? Depends on who you talk to. On the user side, it was, they boot up fast, they're reliable, they don't have to worry about, you know, logging into things. It was all one platform, it was there. But for the administrator, it became really easy to bring technology into your school, right? It became really easy to have one person manage 100,000 Chromebooks. You didn't have to re-image them. You didn't have to do a lot of work with them. You, you can have safe and security. So, so I think that at the end of the day, all, the, all that's been happening with Google tools in the classroom is getting us to the point where we are today, where we can start thinking about what you mentioned, which is how do we do learning in classrooms? How do we use technology in different ways so that we can change what we're doing in our classrooms? And, you know, when you have a podcast called Reimagine Schools, it's only natural that a lot of my guests will come on and uh, discuss this narrative that systematically education's broken. Very little has changed over the past 150 years in the classroom. You have a little different perspective on that, which I found, find very refreshing. Yeah, I, I, I think it's – so, first of all, whenever I hear someone say education is broken or it doesn't work, it tells me that they don't know anything about education, right? They don't know the history or the data, actually, just the pure data. We have more high school graduates today than ever we've ever had in history. We have more people with a college degree than we've ever had in history. The content that we teach kids today, I can't, I can barely do my kindergarten's work comparing, you know, the kindergarten work is the equivalent of my like 11th grade in school. So the content's gotten stronger and better. And so that narrative that education is broken doesn't work. That doesn't work for me. By the way, every time I mention that in a room, even if there's 5,000 people in a room, it worked for all of them. Has it worked for everyone? No. But that's a different conversation. That's in our conversation about access and opportunity. But the narrative that I do think works is that the world has dramatically changed since 1995, right? It's dramatically changed. And what we need to do, this is more of a calling than it is a, a commendation. It's this calling that says that what 
we need to do is exactly what our forefathers in education did 150 years ago to set up education as an important factor in this country. We have to do the same thing now. And we have to ask ourselves, what does education need to look like for this future that we face today? Well, you are a fantastic keynote speaker, and I've had the opportunity to hear you speak uh, a lot of times on YouTube. I'll just do a Google, Jamie Cassip, and there are so many wonderful uh, presentations that you've given. Uh, just watched one recently that really resonated with me. Uh, you were talking about the education system is set up as a single-player sport, but in reality, we live in a team-based world. And then right. you, really, you really took a deep dive into uh, what you call the digitalization economy. And, yeah. and the language for that is computer science. And I know there's a lot to unpack there in one question, but can right. you kind of talk about just why you're so passionate about that topic? Yeah, so, so on, on the idea of the single-player sport, again, that's just the way the system was set up, and, and it served us really well for a very long time. The problem is that we now live in a team-based world where people have to work together. Also, and I don't think I mentioned that specific one, but this idea that we have our students that are growing up thinking, if I don't know the answer, I'm just lost forever, as opposed to finding people who know the answer, right? Or surrounding your, the, the comfort of being able to surround yourself with people who know things that you don't know, right? That's the, the beauty of collaboration, right? So that's on the, <clears throat> on the collaboration side. The thing about computer science and what we need to understand is that it is the baseline language of this digitalized economy, that everything machine learning, artificial intelligence, AR, VR, all the things, at the end of the day, it comes down to starting with computer science. So we need to understand it. Not, we don't, not everyone needs to be a computer scientist, <clears throat> but we need to understand it in the same way all of us need to understand English, and it doesn't mean we're going to be novelists. It means we need to understand it so that we can survive and thrive in this world, and the same is true for computer science. You know, I went to school in the 70s and 80s, and I tell people it was BG before Google. So if we would not have had the Britannica encyclopedia system, I would have yeah. been in big trouble. But uh, I've also heard you talk about the fact that before this technology boom, we had to wait for people to teach us. We had to find a person that was knowledgeable in that area if we wanted to learn about something new. Today, kids have all this information in the palm of their hand. It's just a matter of teaching them an effective way to use it. Absolutely. I think it, it really comes down to, and, and I've been saying this a lot lately in my presentations, which is I think we've given these kids a pass. We, they are absolutely digital, digital natives. They absolutely are the first digital generation. They think about the world in a completely different way because of the world they were born into. However, we've given them a pass. We call them digital natives. We say you were just born with this technology. You know how to use it. But the evidence shows us that they don't know how to use it, right? That they don't know how to effectively use it. We need to, need to do a better job teaching them how to use these tools from a, from a professional way, from a teaching and learning perspective. Stanford study from a couple of years ago showed us that 82% of elementary school kids can't tell you the difference between a sponsored website and a real news site. That's a problem. What we need to do is take a step back and say, yes, they are digital citizens. Yes, they are born in a world where they think about learning in a different way than you and I think about learning. I mean, I had to take a, when I wanted to learn how to write in Spanish, after graduating from graduate school, I had to go take a community college class. That was the only way for me to learn that. This generation thinks online first. That's great. But we can't just let them go with this idea that they're, they're good at this. We have to teach them how to use these tools. 
And I've heard you describe Generation Z as the problem-solving generation. And one of the things that uh, drives you crazy, and I agree, is we're still talking about 21st century skills, talking about teaching the four C's and the soft skills. And, uh, you know, at some point we need to talk about teaching 22nd century skills because right. you, have a, you have a young daughter that's four or five years old. You think about the skills that you want her to learn to be successful in an right. ever-changing world. Uh, we have to kind of shift our mindset there. Yeah, I, I think it. I think you know we've been talking about 21st century skills so long that you know I always joke that we're 20 years into the 21st century. Here's the problem with saying 21st century skills is that for some, this is a subconscious thing. I have no evidence on this, but I think it makes us feel comforted by thinking that 21st century is way out there, right? Like we need to teach them future skills, right? And what we need to do is get slapped in the face with the realization that we are in it right now, right? Like that, I always say that if you want to trigger me, call these soft skills. These are not soft skills. These are absolutely essential. Problem solving, critical thinking, collaboration, the ability to learn, creativity. These are things that I think about my five-year-old learning how to do on a consistent basis. And and that content's great. I want her to learn lots of different things. But as, as long as she's learning those things within that framework, that's what I care more about. I think we need to make sure we're focused on that framework. And the problem is that we don't do a very good job measuring those things, right? And it's hard. How do you measure problem solving? How do you measure the ability to learn? How do you measure creativity? What is the what is the subjective assessment that you would use to measure those things and it's very difficult to do that but just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it you know one of the things that's becoming more and more popular in k-12 education is project-based learning design thinking those types of things and you talk about the ability to learn being the top priority as you think about developing um you know skills for future success but i, I also found it interesting that you said a lot of times we're asking kids the wrong questions Instead yeah. of asking them, you know, what do they want to be when they grow up? We should be asking them what big problems they want to solve. Right. Yeah. The, so, so it's, it's not that it's the wrong question. It's that it's the old question. And I think that's, and I think that's fair, right? Like this idea that that was a question that I was asked when I was a kid. And so you asked the question. The, the problem is that we need to look at it with fresh eyes and realize that what you want to be when you grow up doesn't work anymore. That the jobs of the future don't exist today. I'm working at a company that didn't exist 20 years ago, and I have friends that are working in industries and doing jobs that you don't even know about yet, right? So that question that made sense when I was a kid doesn't make sense anymore. So what we should be asking students instead is what problem do you want to solve? Like what's the, it doesn't have to be a social problem. It could be any problem. It could be, it could, every, if you watch Shark Tank, every person who walks into that Shark Tank is solving a problem. What's the problem that you want to solve? And then the second question which is absolutely critical is how do you want to solve it, right? Like how do you take your gifts, your talents, your passions to solve that problem? Because there's a million ways to solve a problem and how you want to solve it matters. And then the third question, and this is where everyone in education comes in, what do you need to learn to solve that problem? What are the knowledge, the skills, and the abilities that you can have to solve that problem? And what you said about the encyclopedia is true they have the world at their fingertips, right? So when I ask students about the problem that they want to solve, I'm like, what newsletter do you, have you signed up for? What research is out there? What blogs are you reading? What videos? Like you can go on and on. And what classes can you take? You could be doing this all day. You could learn all day and you will never run out of stuff to learn. 
And, you know, I also talk with teachers a lot about, uh, you know, obviously technology has changed everything, but it should also change the pedagogy in the classroom. And, and I have this conversation a lot. If, if students can ask Siri or ask Alexa the question, uh, it probably wasn't a very good question to start with. So if we're going to use technology as a viable learning tool in the classroom, how should the role of the teacher change in the classroom? I know you're a teacher as well. You teach 10th grade communications in the school you co-founded there in Phoenix. But what are your thoughts on how the role of the teacher should change with technology? So, so I think that with technology, the role of the teacher becomes more important, right? Because all of a sudden now, if we think about the skills that students need, our teachers have to help our students develop those skills, right? They have, how do you develop problem solving skills? How do you develop critical thinking and collaboration skills? Collaboration Think about, you know, those that work in education, those that work outside the education, everybody reports to someone. The number one reason why people leave their job across the country is their boss, right? That's the note, like they don't like working for their boss. That boss is responsible for putting an effective team together, right? And usually they fail miserably at that. So putting a team together is hard. It is hard. So how do teachers how do we help them build the skills to put teams together, right? If we want kids to learn how to collaborate, somebody's got to put them on teams. So making sure that our teachers have the skills that they need to do that. So in this new world, the role of the teacher becomes more important. I, one of the trigger words for me is when, when we say in the education space that because information is at our fingertips, teachers now have to be facilitators, right? I, I don't like the word facilitator because it reminds me of a referee, right? A facilitator of a football game is a person who's, who makes sure nobody cheats to make sure that all the rules are followed, that when somebody does something bad, they throw a flag and punish you, right? Like they're there to make sure everything goes smoothly. I want our teachers to be coaches. Like they're sweating like they're playing, but they're not playing. That they know how to put the right team together in the right situation, that, they, that they're as passionate as the players, but they're not actually on the field. That role, how do we make teachers become coaches? And so in this new world of technology, technology is never going to replace teachers. As a matter of fact, it makes the role of the teacher more important. You also talk a lot about uh, the future of work. And uh, I would even describe you as a futurist because you have great insight into how technology has not only changed the world we live in, but what the future might look like. Uh, I know in, in the school we referenced at the Phoenix Coding Academy, uh, computer science is embedded into everything you do across all curriculums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why was that an important part of the curriculum design, and how is that going to help people as they think about uh, jobs? You know, we always talk about jobs that haven't been invented yet. Yeah, and, and so here's the thing we have to think about automation and robotics in general, <clears throat> which is that we're at the very beginning of this that you can buy a self-driving car today. So imagine what that's going to look like in 10 years. Uh, Google just announced a breakthrough in quantum computing. And the best way to describe that breakthrough is the example, which is that basically what they've discovered, what they've come up with is where it takes a supercomputer 10,000 years to solve an equation, this breakthrough can get it done in 300 seconds. What's the impact of that, right? Like what's the, what, that that's like day one. And so computer science becomes a language. Uh, again, it's the concepts of computer science. It's computational thinking, design principles, those ideas that are in computer science that you're engineering stuff. 
an under, with an understanding that automation, robotics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, that's been part of our work for a long time. And often I tell the story about how I went to work 25 years ago the first, for the first time, and it was a, excuse me, an automation tool sitting on my desk. It was a dummy machine that did this magical thing, which is send an email. And, and this was a new concept, that this idea that I can send you a message in seconds when just a couple of years before that, if I wanted to do the same thing, I would have to write it out on a piece of paper and hand it to a typing pool. And two weeks would go by before I can get you that message. Now I can do it in seconds. Automation, robotics, those things have been complementing our work for a very long time. And so that's not going to stop. It's just happening faster now. And so understanding the role of digitalization in the world of work is absolutely critical. And another thing I find interesting is I, I know you get this a question a lot because I do, but people always want to know what the classroom of the future will look like and how you can plan for that. But I've also heard you say that things move so quickly. It's really a futile effort to plan for that far ahead as technology changes so quickly that really it's about being constant and consistent and finding things that you can continue to build on. Yeah. And I, and I think that's where it comes down to when, when at the end of the day, when you're okay, what do we need? What's, what do we, where do we start with this? And it all, and this goes back through history. It starts with culture. It starts with creating a culture of iteration and innovation. It starts with creating a culture of not settling for good enough. It starts with creating a culture that you're not trying to build a classroom 10 years from now or 20 years from now, that you actually realize that you're going to have to do this every day, right? So this is a, the idea for me is that the future classroom starts on Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday. And it's this constant and consistent shift towards this future where you're getting better at it all the time, right? So I, one of the things, I know you're going to talk about the, my, my YouTube channel, but one of the things that I, I, one of the videos I created was this idea around the speed at which learning happens today. It's insane what you can learn how to do today. And even the YouTube channel that I started, I knew nothing about videography or filming or anything like that nine months ago. Never took a class, but I have learned. I have been educated, right? So we have to rethink what that looks like because the speed at which you can learn today is insane and it's only going to get better. My guest today is Jamie Kossip, uh, who's the uh, Chief Education Evangelist at Google. You want to follow him on Twitter at Jay Kossip. And also the YouTube video is, or the YouTube channel, excuse me, is fantastic. You want to subscribe. And Jamie, you've really uh, kind of become a budding YouTube star. How did that even, <laughs> how did that even come into your mind? Yeah, so a, a friend of mine, so I travel a lot, uh, close to 200,000 miles this year, travel around the world. This year, I have actually, that 200,000 mile comes with absolutely no international travel. And I had a friend of mine, someone I consider very close, about a couple years ago, two years ago, come into my office, into my studio and say, you're not doing enough to get your message out. And I almost, I kicked them out. I slapped them. I'm like, you're insane. I traveled 300,000 miles that year. You're telling me I'm not getting my message out. But he was right. I think YouTube is a great platform to get messages out. And I can, I can control the message. I can design the message. I can say, what is it that I want to talk about? For example, the, the, one of the popular videos on there is this idea of feedback, right? Everyone talks about get feedback. You need feedback. But there's a difference between feedback and validation. And so I did this video on understanding when someone's asking you for feedback versus real, versus real feedback versus validation, where they just want you to, he, they want to hear that you like their stuff. So that's an important thing. Another one, I get a lot of emails from young people who say, 
hey, my name is Tom. I'm graduating from college. Um, find me a job. I'm like, no, that's probably not the best approach for reaching out to people. So one of my videos was around uh, how to network in real life. You can get those messages out at conferences and events, and, 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 but you're reaching 100 to even 5,000 people. With the YouTube channel, I can put that message out there, and it's just available around the world for anybody that wants to see it. So I'm hoping to spend more time creating those kinds of uh, uh, videos around key messages that I talk about and then things I don't talk about on a stage, for example, when I do a keynote. And it's so well done, and there are so many great topics and categories. You definitely want to check it out. But, uh, I mean, it's amazing to me. You didn't know a whole lot about YouTube. I mean, obviously you yeah. knew, knew about it uh, working with Google. But in terms of putting that out, editing, I know you had some help from your daughter who's in that. Who's yeah, in that. No, she didn't help me at all. No, 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 no. She... But, but you taught yourself how to learn those things. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the important thing. I think, you know, one of the things we talked about is, like, the ability to learn, right? And I think – what, what I mean by ability to learn is not, I know how to research, I know how to outline. It starts, it's a self-assessment. It's an awareness that I don't know how to do something. So one thing that you will never hear me say ever about is about any topic, I don't know how to do it, right? Like, so like I talk to adults all the time and adults are like, I'm not very creative. Or you talk to students, I'm not very good at math. No, you chose not to be creative. You've chosen not to be good at math. The, the fact that we have the world at our fingertips has, has released you of any excuses that you can use. So for me, if those were my topics, I'd say I need to learn how to be more creative or I'm learning how to be better at math. Like that to me is that self-assessment, that self-awareness that I don't know how to do something. Where can I go learn how to do it? And how do I assess myself as to whether I'm doing it well or not? And so for the YouTube channel, I knew nothing about videography. I'm a, I'm a photographer. I, I didn't even know that my camera had a record button on it. I knew nothing about it. And I, my daughter's help was I asked her where to start. And I think that's another thing that teachers are very good at, getting students to think about where to start with their journey. And for me, my daughter said, you know, shoot in 1080, shoot at 24 frames per second, shoot it, keep your eyes over 100. And she walks me through all these kind of requirements. And I looked at her after she said this to me and I said, cool, thanks for your help. What do any of those words mean? And I went to go learn all those things. And I watched video after video. And, and yes, I'm aware of YouTube, but I'm old. I don't, I don't watch YouTube videos. Now I got like YouTube stars uh, in the photography and videography space that are teaching me and, and, and I'm not even giving them anything for it, right? Like there is this great model where they're teaching me and I can use the wisdom of crowds to say, I can type in the YouTube like shutter speed and I will get a video that has 800 million views. And I'm like, you know what? That video is probably pretty good. So I'm going to start there and then I can go from there. And so you can literally learn how to do anything. And, and that's exciting. Like, I, do you play chess? I don't play chess. Are you good at chess? No, you've chosen not to be good at chess, right? You've just chosen to do it. The ability to learn anything is right there at your fingertips today. And, and you know, I've also heard you say this is just such a wonderful time to be in education and just to be alive with all the technology yeah. that's, that's coming out. So think about the amount of time we spend on social media. Uh, there's something new, a new digital tool that pops up every day. And a lot of those tools are free. So uh, that's another great thing for educators. But I'm still a little discouraged, and I, maybe you can help talk me out of this funk a little bit. We still have way too many schools that, that ban mobile devices in schools. They, they shut down 
the internet, and they're just scared of unintended consequences. What can you sure. say to what can you say to those folks that are still scared to death to incorporate those things in schools? Yeah. So so number one is that. I, I get a chance to, yes, I see a lot of those schools and I see a lot of that, but I also see the opposite, right? I see a lot of schools like that are open, that are ready to go in, that use YouTube, that, are, that have everything available and what they're doing. And what I think everyone needs to do is understand that these tools, technology, digitalization, that's not going, it's not going anywhere. It's only here to stay. And so well, what we need to do with our students is teach them how to use these tools, like I said earlier, is show them how to use it, how to be responsible, how to be mature, how to be these things with an understanding that sometimes things are going to fail or something's going to go wrong or, or, or that you're going to make mistakes and learn from it. And I think the only way to do that is to involve the community, is to get parents involved. And I think that's where the fear comes from. The fear comes from this unknown of what parents or parents are going to react to, the use of technology or the use of these tools. When in reality, parents are probably using these tools as well. So it has to come through the parents. But to make you feel better, I, I always talk about this in my presentation, which is that in 1995, 1% of the world was online, right? Just 1%. And today, it's only 50%. So think about that. And that number is soft, right? If you think about what, what some part of the world might say they're online, compared to what you and I being able to do this online, it's not the same thing. It's probably closer to 30, 35% of the world, right? So think about that. 35% of the world is online. We, we're just getting started. So as much as we want everything to happen right now, 35% of the world is online. We're at the beginning of this. And I often talk about this in my presentation where this is, we, we're repeating history. Electricity went through the same pattern. It took 50 years for electricity to catch on. So if it took electricity 50 years to catch on, it might just take a little bit of time for the internet and technology and digitalization to catch on in education. But there's enough good out there right now that that should keep us busy for a while. Well, and that does make me feel better, and I, I appreciate that. And uh, it's been a great conversation, Jamie. I can't thank you enough for being here. Uh, I can't let you go, though, without asking you a, a question about Google and, yeah. and how, how Google has really changed the culture of the world we live in. You think about things like changing wor what workspaces look like. 20% uh, time is now being incorporated into schools. Um, do you, did you ever dream when you were working inside the walls of Google that you would have such an enormous impact in schools? That's, that's a really good question, and, and no one's ever brought that up before, actually. I, I remember – Walking up the mall after my first or second meeting at Arizona State University when we were talking about Google for your domain and Google Apps at the university, I remember walking up the mall thinking, wow, this could have a huge impact on it. If we do this, this could have a huge impact on how technology is used in education. I remember thinking that that moment, but I never dreamed that it would be the impact that we have today. But more importantly, and this is what's great about the space of education where my energy comes from is I've worked in government. So I worked for two years for governor Cuomo. I've worked at Accenture as a consultant. So I worked in finance and healthcare and electronics and high tech. And I've been at Google for 13 years and out of all, including the 20% time and all the people that I work with at Google and out of all the workforces that I've worked with, there is no more passionate and dedicated workforce than teachers. 
right? That you can make a teacher cry in 30 seconds from the impact that they have. You can't do that with a financial planner. You can, teachers show up on Saturdays. They show up on Sundays. They don't get paid. They spend their own money. Like the, the passion and dedication that teachers have are tremendous. And that energy is contagious. And so I think when I talk to education leaders that what we need to do a better job of is letting teachers go, right? Like letting them solve problems for us and letting them come up with the solutions because they have so much experience with our, with our, with our students that they should be driving this. And that energy and passion is contagious. And I, and I, and that's what gets me excited about why I think this is the most exciting time in history, because it's this group of educators that are going to change the model. And as we wrap up the conversation, I also would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge your incredible journey to where you are today as a first generation American coming from Hell's Kitchen, New York. Uh, yeah. You were one of those at risk kids that we constantly talk about. Yeah. Uh, and from there, you're speaking to the Obamas in the White House about yeah. technology and education. It's just an incredible ride that you've had throughout your lifetime. Yeah, and thank you. And, and, and I think that's where my evangelism and power comes from, right? Which is this idea that education disrupts poverty, that education changes families' destinies. And for me, it's a firsthand experience of this. Like you mentioned, I grew up in Hell's Kitchen in a terrible community. And education is the reason why I'm talking to you today, right? Education and hard work and those things are all critical. But that opportunity, that access, that education gives you can, can take any street kid like me and do anything. And so my assumption is that either I'm successful because I have a 500 IQ, and that's what my wife thinks I think, or there are millions of millions of students just like me who have the same potential, who have the same opportunity. We just got to give them access. We got to give them the opportunity to show us what they can do. Well, again, Jamie, thanks for your time and safe travels as you continue to spread the gospel about creating better schools for kids. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's a wrap, folks. Be sure to follow Jamie on Twitter. Be sure to check out the YouTube channel. It is fantastic. And as always, folks, remember, always do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Schools podcast with Dr. Greg Goins. Be sure to continue the conversation on social media with the Reimagine Schools hashtag and subscribe to the podcast at reimagineschools.net. You can also help support this podcast by clicking on the listener support link and making a small monthly contribution. Contact Dr. Greg Goins today to invite him to speak or present at your next education conference or professional development day. Please send inquiries to drgreggoins at gmail.com or on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins.